All right, everyone. So welcome to using Bitcoin privately. Um, we have uh, three distinguished guests here, two of which are here in person, and one is tuning in. Um, again, we want to talk about privacy and surveillance and using Bitcoin as safely as possible. A lot of people here in Miami or New York using Bitcoin may not be that worried uh, about people understanding um, their, their Bitcoin usage, uh, but folks around the world uh, have, have a, deep, uh, a deep need to understand this topic. So I'm delighted to have three, um, three experts on this. Just give me a second to, to quiet the, the venue and then you guys can, can go. Just give me a second. Testing, testing. How's it going, guys? Janine, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Awesome. Hi. Okay. There we go. So hey, we Jean. have Janine joining us remotely. Um, my name is Matt O'Dell. I'm an independent Bitcoin privacy advocate. Uh, we're here to talk about a very important conversation, which is using Bitcoin privately and the different privacy gotchas that involve Bitcoin. Um, this, after we have our conversation, there's going to be a 10-minute Q&A. So if you have any questions consider them, and we're, we're looking forward to the questions. We find that very productive. Um, I wanted to thank Alex and HRF for hosting the Bitcoin Academy. Uh, it's a really important initiative uh, for hosting Oslo Freedom Forum in general. You know, a lot of these activists, um, they're very motivated, very determined. They put their lives at risk every day, and I really do think, you know, that's part of the reason that we put so much effort into Bitcoin. Um, so it really, it, it really does make it all worth it uh, being here and hearing those stories. Um, before I pass it over to Evan, um, I'm curious here, how many people have sent a Bitcoin transaction? Wow. Okay, good. Um, Evan, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure thing. Hey all, I'm Evan Kaloudis. I am a software engineer. You guys might know me from my open source project, Zeus, which is a lightning wallet for people who run their own full node. I also work at Kraken, uh, trying to get the lightning integration out the door there. Two weeks. <laughs> Two weeks. Let's see. Let's see. Um, but yeah, just really glad to be here and talk to you guys about a really important topic. Um, you know, Bitcoin is something that has a lot of misconceptions behind it. And I'm sure, you know, many of you, when they first heard about Bitcoin, uh, you know, had this misconception that it was a, a private uh, asset, you know, that its transactions um, were completely private, and that's just not the case. So, uh, yeah, so the goal of our talk is to, you know, introduce you guys to some methods you could use to um, maintain privacy when using Bitcoin and um, knowing some of the gotchas. Janine, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi there. Uh, my name is Janine, and um, I'm an investigative journalist and privacy researcher, currently at uh, CASA, actually. Um, earlier this year, I received a grant from the Human Rights Foundation for my newsletter, This Month in Bitcoin Privacy, which is a relevant resource for anyone here who is interested in the topic of our session today. Thank you, Janine. Uh, we have a lot of respect for Janine. Uh, she's doing the privacy advocacy correct because you can't see her right now. Um, so she brings shame to me and Evan. Um, so first and foremost, uh, Bitcoin is not private by default. 
if you send a Bitcoin transaction, it is on the ledger called the blockchain. Uh, that ledger is viewable by everyone. It will probably outlive all of us. Um, so mistakes you make today can affect you in the future, especially if you're an activist in an authoritarian regime. Um, they will try and track your transactions. They will try and use it against you. You need to be aware of that risk that it exists in the first place. Um, the second big thing I really want to hone in here is that most people who are entering Bitcoin nowadays enter through regulated on-ramps. Those regulated companies require identification information, KYC information, email addresses, phone numbers, social security numbers, driver's licenses. Those are all connected to your Bitcoin addresses when you withdraw. So if you don't take privacy precautions at that point, uh, it can be used against you in the future. Uh, even if the company is not malicious, they might not be able to secure it correctly. Uh, it might get hacked. It might get bought, stolen. Um, we just had Coinbase recently. They had 6,000 people's uh, intimate personal information, home addresses, every withdrawal address all get leaked. Um, and so you, you might think you're protected now, but if that happens in the future, then a malicious actor can go and use, look back on the blockchain and go back and see your transactions that they might not have been able to see before. Um, Janine, you have any opening thoughts over there? We might have some connectivity issues or she might be muted. Evan, what are you thinking? Um, so yeah, so when you're dealing with the blockchain, which is this immutable database, it's uh, you know quite, quite crucial to do things correctly. You can't undo your mistakes, right? Once a transaction is broadcast and then more importantly, like confirmed, there's no undoing it. That record is sealed and it's on the hard drive of everyone who's running a Bitcoin node. Janine, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Uh, awesome. It's just a bit. Uh, noisy. <laughs> um, so, did you could you hear what we were saying? Do, do you have any thoughts before we move on to risks? Um, yeah, um, I mean, the main thing I wanted to say because uh, a lot of uh, I've especially heard in the last couple of days that there are some people um, saying that not your keys, not your coins. Um, even though it's been a popular mantra in Bitcoin for many years. Um, they say that this is now somehow outdated advice um, and that you, for user experience reasons for quote exposure, it's better to get on board through a top five exchange. And what I have to say to that is that if your user experience requires compromising your ethics, your safety, your privacy, or your liberty, then it's not really a user experience. It's more of a user cage, maybe a nice gilded cage that gives you 7% monthly returns on deposits or access to the latest revolutionary pump and dump token, but it's still a cage. And that maybe the price for your freedom is not as high uh, one to pay for you because you live in a rich and safe city in the world under a government that doesn't have much interest in oppressing you. But for most of the world, that price is too high to pay. For most of the world, this so-called open financial system of crypto exchanges is not one that they have even the choice to enter. Um, because actually as a legal, legally documented person of the United States myself, I actually can't open a Coinbase account, for example, even if I wanted to, because I don't possess the right kinds of documentation to satisfy their KYC policies. Um, so imagine how much harder it is for people who are less privileged than me. Imagine having worse financial inclusion than banks and marketing yourself as open. Um, and so I think that's very much related to privacy because a lot of the times things that are 
uh, custodying your coins. A lot of the time that also comes with less privacy. There's a link between the two. So this is just uh, an example of why financial privacy is also a financial inclusion and a, therefore a human rights issue. And that's what I hope we can share with you today about how to avoid creeping traditional financial surveillance into Bitcoin. That was fantastic, Janine. They're clapping for you. And also, by the way, I don't know if you realize if you can tell from the video stream, but Udi is like sitting right in front of me. So it was very, it was very relevant. No, you do not get a mic. Um, so I mean, right here we have we have different risk factors that people should be considering. Uh, first and foremost, I know this sounds very, very intimidating. And I know that even in our non-Bitcoin lives, uh, we don't really have much privacy. It feels uh, very overwhelming. It feels like we're already screwed. So what what's the point of trying to improve our situation? And I, I really think it's important that people realize that little things you do um, can improve your situation. Uh, they do make a difference. And at scale, as more people try and improve themselves little by little, um, it helps all of us. And, uh, and, and that's, that's what we, I think is really important for people to really get, right? Is that it's not all or nothing and you can do actionable things today that will improve yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're thinking about mass surveillance, uh, you know, it's been a hot topic the last decade, pretty much. Um, the sm small things that you can do in, you know, helping add to your privacy in Bitcoin is not only just helping yourself, uh, but helping us all. If we make the cost of surveillance on Bitcoin uh, high enough, then it can't be done at scale. And that's one of the major things that we were trying to avoid. Yeah, the, the goal is less targeted attacks. Like if if you have a sophisticated attacker who's trying to compromise your privacy, um, you're probably going to get owned. Uh, but but cheap, easy, efficient mass surveillance uh, can be mitigated to a degree. And I, I think that's where we the, a lot of the focus should be. Um, so Janine, do you want to walk us through these main risk factors that we have up here? Yeah, um, there's quite a few. Um, and the reason I kind of phrased it as risk factors, but also actors, is that some of them are factors, but a lot of them involve actual actors. Um, biggest one, obviously, is trusted third parties. And that's kind of a mixed bag because, obviously, it would be great if we could trust third parties and they could be reliable. But the problem is that sometimes they can't even act on their own interests. They have to act on the interests of you know, the government's legal situation that they have in the jurisdiction that they operate in. And so they may be forced against their will to do things that they don't want to do. Um, and so therefore they are a risk regardless of whether they are, you know, it's a business operated by nice people who claim to care about privacy. That's all great. But if the legal system forces them to, then they can't care as much anymore or they have to shut down. Um, so things like custodial wallets and exchanges are a threat because by most uh, by most laws um, in a lot of countries, they have to collect certain personally identifiable information. That information can be leaked. For example, uh, not to make Coinbase the um, big bad wolf in the room, but they recently uh, revealed that um, due to a flaw in their 2FA uh, second factor system, uh, their process, uh, about 6,000 Coinbase customers had their accounts compromised. And that not only included, you know, theft of coins, but also, you know, whoever had access to their accounts could obviously probably access their personal information that they used to open those accounts. 
Um, but of course, this can happen at any exchange that gets compromised. Um, also a good reason, as we will maybe mention later, don't use SMS-based 2FA, very bad. Um, then the kind of more general categories, you have physical attacks. That's you know people who notice that you walk around in a Bitcoin shirt. Um, I personally have a rule, I don't know if anyone else does, but I have a rule that I only wear Bitcoin merchandise actually at Bitcoin events or Bitcoin meetups. I do not in general walk around Bitcoin stuff. And I know maybe that's not so great for Bitcoin marketing because you can't all find each other out in the cafe or the public square. But I personally would like to eliminate as much as possible the threat of someone thinking that I have a lot of money and they can just come to my house, follow me home and get my money. Um, there's also virtual attacks, a lot of SIM swapping um, stories lately in the last couple of years. Um, there's identity theft related to trusted third parties. There's scams, all kinds of ways that you can be attacked virtually as well. And then finally, favorite category of mine, blockchain surveillance. And I would like to clarify that um, a lot of them like to say that they do blockchain analysis. And something that I distinguished many years ago between blockchain analysis and surveillance is that blockchain, you know, blockchain surveillance is blockchain analysis, but it has this added, uh, let's say, element to it where it is being done on behalf of law enforcement, as in the results of the analysis, the conclusions that it comes to, which may be wrong, because a lot of blockchain analysis is about probabilities, um, not certainty, is a person getting put in jail or a person getting fined. There is a law enforcement aspect. And so my, I personally say, if your analysis is being done on that kind of purpose, it's surveillance. I call that surveillance, you're a surveiller. <laughs> Um, so these are kind of, there's a lot other risk factors and actors, but I think these are the main categories. Um, so th thank you, Janine. So, I, I mean, there's a couple of things I would add to what Janine was talking about. First of all, we do have these surveillance firms. They're actively watching uh, both the blockchain and they're, they're checking all this KYC data with the exchanges. They have partnerships with all the major uh, regulated services in Bitcoin. Um, they are actively, constantly looking for people. Um, they are a regulatory requirement by a lot of these services that they need them to be compliant. And by all means, I do not think, you know, I'm, I'm not asking regulated services to break the law, uh, but these laws are ineffective. These KYC laws, these ID laws, uh, they say it's to stop criminals. The criminals buy all, all of our stolen KYC information, and then they use that to open accounts. So it's not stopping criminals. It's hurting law-abiding citizens. Um, the other thing I would add is uh, she mentioned probabilities. And the whole way their systems work is trying to figure out when you send a transaction on chain, um, whether or not ownership switched hands. So obviously, with Bitcoin, you can send Bitcoin to yourself. Um, they use different heuristics to look at that on-chain data and make a determination if that Bitcoin passed from me to Evan or if Evan just sent it to himself. And that is, that is the key to everything right there is those heuristics and those probabilities. Um, and the ideal situation is to have tools that make it so those heuristics get broken. And as a result, their probabilities go way lower down and they can't be certain exactly you know, if ownership changed. So hope is not lost. We do have mitigations currently and a lot of things uh, that are being improved. Um, Janine, you want to walk us through this? 
yeah, before we go into mitigations, because um, I, I definitely do want to incorporate, you know, the the feature or the, the focus of the conference human rights as much as possible in this, because I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and so some of you may have heard, uh, you know, Udi's of the audience. Hi, Udi. Uh, some of you may have heard of me from the delete Coinbase campaign. Uh, Udi came up with the hashtag uh, or got it really going in early 2019. And in February of that year, um, the reason that campaign started, it had caught my attention that um, Coinbase had acquired a blockchain surveillance company called Neutrino, which was staffed by former upper management of hacking team, specifically Giancarlo Russo, Marco Valeri, and Alberto Ornaghi. Yes, that hacking team, the infamous um, offensive intrusion and surveillance software company that at one point trained members of a kill team that would go on to murder Jamal Khashoggi and has likely helped target attendees of Oslo Freedom Forum itself. Um, I managed to find and publish the Neutrino Coinbase acquisition agreement. Um, so that's why we know a bit more about that. And in response to the backlash that I helped contribute to, Coinbase claimed that they had made an oversight, a due diligence oopsie, um, that they neglected their values as a company um, by welcoming these people, these men into the Coinbase family, as they called it. Um, of course, what did they do as a result? They transitioned them out, but slowly, and um, of course, kept whatever blockchain surveillance technology those people had produced, rebranded it as Coinbase Analytics. They've since received contracts from Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Secret Service, Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA, the IRS, and the FBI. Um, you can see the details of these contracts at techinquiry.org slash explorer. Um, to anyone who believes the doublespeak of these blockchain surveillance firms about privacy, by the way, if any of you are here, I doubt it, but please show yourselves, uh, then quit your job, and then ideally give us some internal docs for the journalists. Um, to anyone who says that, uh, <laughs> to anyone who says that blockchain surveillance is not a human rights issue, I would challenge you to explain to the victims of hacking team software why they should feel comfortable using services like Coinbase or any exchange that maybe uses one of these blockchain surveillance firms, which not only in, in this particular case, gave millions of dollars to people who facilitated the compromise of their devices on behalf of their not-so-human rights-friendly governments, but continue to profit off of their software through state sponsor sponsorship. Why should they give their sensitive personal information to a business that can't even Google or DuckDuckGo the names of bad actors whose emails were leaked in 2015 before hiring them? Janine really doesn't like Coinbase. <laughs> Thank you, Janine. That was that's a very important point, and I'm very glad that you brought it up here. Um, it's, uh, I mean, they obviously did know. That's just uh, some some PR bullshit. Um, so here we have uh, some. I guess I did kind of skip a slide. We have different ways of mitigating things uh, on the privacy side. You have a, a a great way of acquiring Bitcoin in a private fashion is at home mining. Um, mining is permissionless. You can plug in a miner and you can receive Bitcoin um, in, a, in a very private way. Uh, a follow-up talk today is going to be focused on mining, so I will leave it at that. Um, but you should definitely be here for that because it's, it's, really, it's going to be a really great conversation. Um, KYC free services, uh, services basically uh, like P2P trading, being able to trade with other people uh, without going through a, a centralized third party. Uh, that is collecting your ID information. Another thing is earning Bitcoin uh, for goods and services. If you have a store, you can accept Bitcoin. 
Um, then a person is paying you Bitcoin. You're not relying on those on those services, you know, those centralized exchanges. Um, and then we have layer two, which we're going to be talking about lightning um, and coin join. Coin join is a technique uh, that allows you to break those heuristics on chain uh, through collaborative transactions. The idea of having multiple people together making a transaction. Uh, when I first uh, started working with Alex and the Freedom Fellows at HRF, uh, we had, I think, one coin join wallet in 2019. And today we have uh, four. And we have even more that are in development right now. I guess we don't even have join market up here. Nope. So we have five. Um, all with different varying trade-offs. Uh, but the focus on basically trying to add privacy to Bitcoin through the app layer has been a major focus because one of the main value props of Bitcoin is that it's extremely hard to change. So expectations that uh, we would see like major privacy improvements that happen by default on Bitcoin, uh, I, people don't really expect that. I mean, I don't expect that. Uh, probably not. <laughs> right, so instead the idea is to do it at the app layer and have these software tools that allow you to kind of automate it to a degree so it's not as uh, complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, big challenge in this is the user interface. And uh, thankfully, we're getting more and more interfaces to easily conduct a coin join transaction, um, you know, every day. So uh, lately, we got Sparrow Wallet on board. That was like this week. Yes, yeah. very lately. Um, and they got into the Whirlpool, which is a uh, coin join that's coordinated by the folks at Samurai Wallet. Uh, so we're really stoked about this one. It's a, a cross-platform desktop app, and uh, you could coin join your funds right in it. So we're actually kind of starting to run out of time here, and I, I do want to do a Q&A. Um, one of the issues with Bitcoin privacy is that it also relies on internet privacy in general. So you have a lot of gotchas on the internet side of things. How do you send Bitcoin addresses to someone who's going to pay you? How do you secure your phone? How do you secure your computer? Uh, Bitcoin provides a financial incentive to try and improve your security because uh, otherwise your money or your financial transactions are at risk. Uh, it would behoove me to say that if your life is at risk and it's a life or death situation and you can use cash, uh, you probably should just use cash. Uh, cash is very private, uh, at least for spending and, and receiving in person. Um, but we have some things here, you know, encrypted messaging. Uh, Janine, you want to jump in here at all? Yeah, um, <laughs> as I said before, <laughs> uh, as I said before, um, always good and as other people on other panels have said always good to use um, two-factor authentication but there are a number of reasons why you shouldn't use sms based 2fa so if for example you use an exchange that has that you should probably use something else if you can or move to a different wallet or exchange um, anytime sms based 2fa is given as an option avoid it um, uh, obviously tor browser and vpns um, there is uh, there is or was a uh, actually my my uh kind of nickname that one privacy girl comes after that one privacy guy who runs a VPN comparison website, um, that one privacy site, I think. And it actually compared um, VPNs and um, according to a number of characteristics like jurisdiction and whether they log and those. And so it's 
for most people, if you get your VPN recommendations from, for example, YouTube ads or sponsorships, um, you should rethink that. Um, most of pretty much all of the VPNs I've seen recommended on YouTube are not ones that I would recommend. Um, so definitely rethink that and try to use Tor whenever possible, ideally even more than, so than VPNs. Um, encrypted messaging. Um, I'm personally uh, try to be as phone free as possible, so I don't use Signal as much. Um, but there are other, there are actually a lot of phone free options. And the reason in general that I um, would recommend going phone free or at least as phone free as possible is that there's a number of issues with, for example, using phone numbers as identifiers, um, using phones in general. Um, there's just certain attack vectors there that are not. Uh, they're almost impossible for the user to patch in any way. That's why we have SIM swapping, because you don't actually own your phone number. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of browser extensions that you can add um, to prevent ad tracking. Um, uBlock Origin, basically the number one recommendation for that. And there's a bunch of others. You can all find those at a resource that we list at the end called privacyguides.org, um, which goes through all of those. Um, and so, yeah. Thank you, Janine. Um, I really, as with VPNs, it's a, it's a trusted relationship. So instead of your ISP, your internet service provider, uh, being able to see all your traffic, uh, you're basically passing that off to another company. Um, ideally, What's, what's kind of nice about that trade-off balance is you can pay with Bitcoin with some of the good ones. I really like Molvad.net. Um, and so they do have, by, by design, they have less information uh, about yourself than, uh, than your internet service provider, like your cable company or something like that. Um, so now we're going to the Lightning Network. This is uh, Evans Fort. He loves, he loves Lightning. He has one of the, the best Lightning wallets uh, on the market. Hopefully, Thanks for the kind words. Hopefully, I'll implement CoinJoin in it so that you can do CoinJoin into Lightning. <laughs> uh, we'll see about that. Uh, but yeah, I just want to talk a little bit about Lightning Network. And uh, Lightning Network provides a lot of great uh, benefits privacy-wise because your transactions are no longer being written to this immutable ledger in the form of the blockchain. Uh, however, there are a couple other trade-offs and things people should be aware of. So uh, we got a couple of diagrams up about... Um, what the payment flows look like from both a sender and receiver's perspective and what is known by all the parties. Uh, so over here we have um, a beneficiary and an originator for making a payment. And in green is what the receiver knows and in gray is what they don't know. Uh, so the receiver over here, they know of course uh, themselves, the beneficiary nodes, and they know uh, the routing node uh, the last hop from which uh, the payment came from. So Lightning Network uses um, Onion messaging, uh, somewhat similar to how the Tor network works. And uh, basically, it's like a stack of encrypted blobs, sort of like uh, one of those old Russian dolls or you could keep tearing apart. And it's pretty much it's only encrypted so that you know things on a need-to-know basis. You pretty much uh, have this data and you just know what the next hop is going to be. Right, so in this situation, routing node two knows uh, his payment came from routing node one and is going to the beneficiary node. Um, yeah, let's hit the next slide. Uh, so this is the payment flow from the sender's perspective. Uh, the originator uh, knows the whole flow uh, of the payments. 
they know that it went through their node and they used this whole path of routing nodes and they know what the destination is. Um, whereas the beneficiary uh, doesn't necessarily know the, uh, where it the payment came from. Uh, however, the important thing to know here is that as things currently stand, uh, the receiver doesn't really have privacy in that their uh, public key for their node is embedded in the payment request that they're paying. It's so, a unique identifier for the node. Yeah, and, and there's ways to sort of mitigate this. I think we're going to see some great enhancements with something called rendezvous routing on the Lightning Network. And uh, some of the app wallets have been getting creative. Like in Moon, you can like rotate. Moon with two U's, by the way. Justine recommended it earlier. It's two U's. So uh, that one sort of has lets you change your public key up, so it's a little better for um, for receiving from a privacy perspective. High level, high level with Lightning senders are getting better privacy than receivers. Absolutely. Um, so if you're taking donations, a lot of activists that's the main thing that they want to do is take donations. Or if you're a merchant, um, these are these are considerations you have to make if you're accepting Lightning payments. Um, also, Lightning is is very new still. Um, it yeah, hasn't it's a really, three-year-old protocol right now. Right. It, so um, it hasn't really it 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 hasn't really existed necessarily in an adversarial environment. So there are some gotchas that maybe we're not even really aware of yet. Yeah, that's true. Um, and and ideally, but what's really cool about Lightning is because it's a second layer, uh, development happens much much quicker than on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is very hard to change. Lightning changes very quickly and improves very quickly. Yeah, we don't need um, like a mass consensus to roll out a new feature on Lightning. All you need is two people to agree to run the software and agree to a new scheme. So hopefully all this in like two years is completely irrelevant. That'd be nice. Hopefully we'll be back to update y'all on that. <laughs> so we have a list of resources here uh, because it is a very dense topic. Once again, I wanna say, you know, don't get overwhelmed, uh, make little improvements, learn as you go. Uh, try and improve your, improve your setup. Uh, it is, can be very intimidating. Um, but but hope is not lost. Uh, you can you can figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if anyone ever has questions, feel free to reach out to Matt, Janine, and I. Uh, we'd love to help you all out. And uh, do, we, do we have time for a Q and A? Yeah, we have seven minutes for Q and A. All right, let's do it. Uh, so I I love I don't want to go off topic from the Lighting Network. I love the Lighting Network, but just wanted to to because he's I know it's recent, but. What's most recent and it's it's more um, threatened to to us and to me and perhaps to more activists that are here from everywhere, it's uh, Pegasus and the fact that they can get into your phone. I know there was a session yesterday. It was kind of it was good. It was a good session. It was but not not in person, just like you guys. Uh, so I just wanted to to perhaps even combine even if we, if we were using the Lightning Network and and my my devices are compromised with Pegasus on the computer or 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 the my iPhone how, how does that what do you guys think of that in terms of privacy in terms of all in general I'm investigating that for myself as well how, how that yeah works. absolutely so um, malware especially created by like NGOs and nation states uh, is going to be pre prevalent in a lot of places um, so unfortunately with lightning network those wallets are typically hot wallets and have to be on active devices so my, gener um, my general advice would be uh, for Lightning Network, I would use for you know, smaller amounts that you could afford to lose uh, and have your Bitcoin in form of savings on the device that's not touched the internet. 
So you could have it on a hardware wallet or in cold storage. Um, yeah, feel free to reach us out to us and we'll get you in the right direction with that. Uh, back there. I'm gonna answer the question. I think a good idea is to run your own Lightning Network, your own Lightning Node, because we know like not your keys, nor your coins, nor your nodes, nor your rules. Then, no, but, no, but, uh, yeah, but when, when you run your own Lightning node in a Raspberry, like in a different the, the device. Node, the node can still be compromised because it's connected to the internet, which is the problem. Oh, okay. So while I do still recommend you use a Raspi Blitz or something like that, I love Raspi Blitz, um, you still have to be cognizant that anything connected to the internet can still be popped, especially with all these zero days that, you know, these intelligence agencies, uh, you know, pretty much buy. Can we even please keep even it to using questions? tour, yes. Sorry, Alex. Uh, let's please keep it to questions. Uh, white shirt in the back. Um, thank you. Question for the panel. Uh, leading to one of the questions, uh, Matt said, if uh, you are targeted by a sophisticated state actor, uh, this is probably you're probably owned. This is a conference of people who are regularly targeted by state uh, security actors. Do you ever see? Um, all this uh, as easy to operate as a toaster so that you don't need uh, ninja level uh, security. I mean, that's the dream, right? Uh, unfortunately, we're not really there yet. I think, uh, I, I, you know, this is all very new. We've never had such a digital world. Um, and as more of our lives become digital, uh, people will get burned. Uh, the leaks and the hacks will get bigger and bigger. And as these attacks escalate, uh, hopefully there'll be a natural you know, market incentive and market forces and, and just motivation by people who want to see things change um, to improve things. But unfortunately, I tend to, I'm optimistic, but I'm kind of optimistic because I think it'll get pretty bad and as it gets worse, like people will see the need for it, right? Because if it happens at a smaller scale, people don't really, um, the, the will isn't there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that we're gonna see a lot of great UI and UX improvements as far as using Bitcoin, especially using Bitcoin privately. Um, obviously, there are a lot of people who are passionate about it and, and that are cranking out great new software every day, but uh, I, I think it's gonna take a little more investment from other parties to really make the products that we want to see happen. So, quick question: Are all of these uh, software? Are all of these layered softwares depending on Bitcoin, or any cryptocurrency will work? This is all Bitcoin specific. Uh, our focus—I uh, can speak for Janina as well as Evan—is our focus has been purely on Bitcoin. Um, it's a, a, a massive opportunity to improve the world, uh, so we try not to get uh, too distracted on other projects. Yeah, I just don't think any other project has the infallibility that Bitcoin has. Like uh, Everything else is, is not subject to the same assurances that Bitcoin has. They could easily be manipulated, uh, whether from you know uh, the, the founders being compromised, pressure being put on there, the networks not being decentralized, centralized uh, choke points on exchanges with a lot of them. Um, yeah, just, just no other cryptocurrency is, is nearly as resilient as Bitcoin. So we, we need to make sure we get this one right. Or, or either one, yeah. 
that being said, um, you know, in terms of the development point of view, I've really um, kind of concerned about uh, compromising security. A lot of these new products are coming in, you know, based on other development programs, um, faster, quicker, and it's compromising security. So, and this happens because the uh, finance may not understand the development work. Why should it invest more in Bitcoin programming? Um, because it is more secure. Um, so what can we do as community to say, hey, do not compromise security over, um, you know, cheaper, faster, doesn't necessarily mean better. <laughs> so I, I really want to see more uh, Bitcoin developers get paid a bit better because it is more of a challenging program, but there's a reason for that. And also I want to see the community to understand why that is important because security has to do a lot to do it. So hopefully, you know, I just want to bring more awareness to that. We definitely agree. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. I do want to use that opportunity to say, if you go to hrf.org slash dev fund, um, you can donate Bitcoin or fiat and uh, the HRF is providing grants to open source Bitcoin developers who are, aren't making much money, if anything at all. Um, so you should definitely consider doing that. Yeah, um, thanks to HRF, they gave a one Bitcoin grant to the Zeus project. Uh, we turned around and uh, put out five different bounties for contributions to the Zeus uh, source code. And um, as a result, we've got support for many more different kinds of lightning implementations. And now we have Tor caked into the app. And uh, you know that that's thanks to HRF. So I'd just like to say thank you for that. Thank you, Janine. Thank you, Janine. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. We'll see you soon. Thank, Thank you. you.